Welcome to season three of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This season is a little bit different. It's all about NATO. Yes, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With the help of media and defense experts, we will be breaking down what NATO is all about. In previous episodes, we have discussed everything from cyber attacks and decision making to public policy and crisis management. Today, a year on from our first five episodes of season three, we have a special live episode recorded at the US Embassy and brought to you by NATO. This episode will focus on the invasion of Ukraine and the narrative spread to justify the war, both within Russia and beyond. Our panelists will shed light on the effects of conspiracy theories, disinformation and state propaganda, and on the ways in which NATO can act to inoculate itself and its members from disinformation. Today, we are joined by Dr. Precious Chatterjee Doody, lecturer in politics and international relations at The Open University and author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power and Politics on RT. Second, we have Claire Halperin, Deputy Head of Mission and Spokesperson at the UK Joint Delegation to NATO. Third, we are joined by Nicholas Yap, the Deputy Director and Chief of Staff at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Finally, joining us virtually, Paul King, Editor and Engagement Officer at NATO. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform. And this episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of NATO. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to teach you more about global security through the lens of NATO. Welcome, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Perfect. So my name is Sydney Smith. I'm one of the cultural affairs officers here at US Embassy London. And I'm really excited to invite you into our space today and have a really interesting conversation um, that I hope you guys will be very active participants in. Um, I'm really grateful to our partners, Shout Out UK, and of course, NATO, UK Mission to UK, um, and of course, US NATO as well. Um, and I'm just really excited to have this conversation. I think it's, uh, this is the second time actually that we've done a similar event to this with Shadow UK. Um, and if you get a chance to listen to previous podcast series, which was on misinformation and conspiracy theories, I highly recommend you check that out. Um, I think it's fitting that we're having this conversation today. Uh, today, uh, Prime Minister is meeting with uh, President Biden in Washington. Ukraine, of course, will be one of the main topics they speak about. Later in this month, there is the Ukraine uh, Recovery Conference, and then next month, of course, the NATO summit in Vilnius, where Ukraine and Russian aggression will again be at the top of the agenda. Um, Napoleon famously said that war is 90% information. And I think that's more true today than it has ever been, especially as we live more and more of our realities in digital spaces. I remember watching uh, Ukrainian TikTok last summer and seeing the devastation that the war was having on people's lives and homes and livelihood and thinking how strange it was that we were watching essentially the first live streamed war and what the implications of that would be in sort of paradigm shifting uh, for the future. <clears throat> While Russia uh, limited or banned Western social media, Ukrainian government has actually encouraged this kind of citizen journalism, which has been very compelling and effective at showing the rest of the world the human cost of the war. Conversely, we've seen a rise in Russian disinformation around the invasion, aimed domestically and internationally, with particular focus on Latin America and African countries, which are paradoxically anti-imperialist and anti-colonial message and often taking particular aim at NATO. Given that many could reasonably describe this current war as a war of conquest, this message framing may seem ironic, but effective disinformation doesn't rely on creating a coherent narrative. It's enough to simply flood the space with so, to sow distrust and undermine the truth of any one message or narrative. And Russia has been very effective at utilizing real resentments and existing conspiracy theories to do just that. How we can work together with NATO member states and our allies to counter this is the important conversation that we're going to have today. 
And so without further ado, I will turn the mic over to our moderator, Mateo. Thank you so much, uh, Sydney. I think first I just want to give a uh, massive round of applause and thank you to the US Embassy for hosting us today. Um, as well as, of course, to, uh, to NATO for making this episode uh, of Media Minded uh, possible. Uh, for those of you that haven't come to a live recording uh, of a, a podcast, you're in for a bit of a treat. Um, hopefully we'll be uh, uh, having some quite interesting discussions. We've got some incredible uh, speakers on the uh, panel. And then there will be time, of course, for, for questions uh, later near the end. So thank you all for joining us. And uh, I look forward to the discussions. Paul, how does NATO work to combat disinformation at the moment? Well, there are, there are, there are multiple different ways since February 24th. Um, one of the first ways that uh, was agreed amongst the allies was to, for the first time, release quite a lot of classified information prior to um, to what we knew Putin was going to do. So we released that um, about his plans, about the fact that he was definitely planning to invade. Uh, and this was quite an unusual move. But the idea was to essentially say to him and to audiences around the world, we know what's going to happen despite what he says. So that was a way of undermining some of the disinformation, because as you may remember at the time, he said, I think it was three times, even once, uh, just a few days before the invasion, we will not invade Ukraine. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, that we don't make a policy of chasing every disinformation story. Um, if we did that, then that's exactly what the Russians want. Um, it's a bit like a, a, an information version of a, of, of a landmine. Um, so a landmine is not designed to kill a soldier when he steps on it, it's designed to maim him so that, uh, you know, four or five other people are taken up with helping him and then a medivac and several other people are taken up. Um, so you're actually taking up other uh, adversaries in uh, an activity other than fighting you. Uh, and disinformation can be very similar, which is to send you chasing off uh, a thousand different stories um, which are all incorrect. If you tie yourself up in not chasing every story, then again, you're doing exactly what the Russians want. So, so we don't do that. We stick with uh, factual information. We've got something on our website called um, Putting the Record Straight. And there, should there have been any, um, any particular disinformation about what we're doing, who we are, we just give a very frank account of what the truth is. Um, so we're not reactionary. We just stick to a foundation of we have the facts on our side. Uh, and the final thing that we do is that um, we've got to remember, particularly as we're all, uh, you know, we're largely Anglo-Saxons, and this is in London, we've got to remember that a lot of uh, disinformation is in local language. And so that's, that means that what NATO can do is certainly help coordinate the fight against uh, disinformation. But we cannot be frontline because a lot of this is local people, local uh, publications, local uh, language. Uh, and so the, the host country itself is doing um, that. And the final thing I will say is, is that, again, there's no one size fits all because the wedge issues in, in different alliance countries uh, will be different. Um, so if you want to talk about gay marriage and certain Eastern countries, that can be a, West, a wedge issue. If you try that in our Nordic countries, it's not. Uh, and so you, you have to essentially look at um, how wedge issues are being introduced. Um, you have to keep a, a, certainly an overview of what disinformation is being done. But as I say, NATO um, does not want to overstretch itself. And you must recognize that there's a very key role played by the, by the member states themselves. No, of course. Thank you. Thank you. And that, um, and that point of localised context is a big one because um, one message definitely doesn't fit all. And when one message resonates or one issue resonates, you know, it, it just hits completely differently or not at all, depending on, depending on where, uh, where you are and to whom you're speaking to. Um, and, and Claire, if, if, if I may, um, just understand the kind of scale or, or what we're dealing with. Um, what has been the impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict on NATO and its allies? Um, obviously, I mean, broadly, but also in the context of disinformation. 
would you say? Um, well, I, I think one of the major things is um, that when Putin decided to invade Ukraine, he probably thought that allies um, wouldn't agree, that we'd start arguing, that you might see a bit of division, wedges drawn between the West. Actually, that isn't what happened at all. Um, and I think it's fair to say that um, NATO and its allies are stronger and more united than ever. Um, so, so one of the impacts is just is just you know really bringing NATO allies together. It was also a bit of a wake up call. Um, obviously, there are some NATO countries at the time, six percent of Russia's border, that are on Russia's border, and then and that produces you know it's quite worrying for some of those countries um, that um, if. Russia can invade Ukraine with impunity, then, um, then they might be next. So um, what NATO has done about that is, is strengthened its deterrence and defense. It was already trying to do that. That process has been, um, has been really accelerated. Um, and uh, NATO is a defensive alliance. So not, you know, there's, I mean, that, our, our role is to protect the one billion citizens that are part of NATO. Um, and but that, therefore, it is important to send those messages of, um, deterrence uh, to Russia and any other potential adversaries. Um, and thirdly, is that you know support for Ukraine. Ukraine's um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine was against UN Charter. Um, we believe uh, NATO allies believe that every uh, country has a right to its own uh, territorial sovereignty. And so um, NATO allies have really stepped up. And it's mainly allies working not through NATO but using NATO as a kind of platform to provide political and practical. Um, support to Ukraine. And even today, uh, we saw the incident with the dam yesterday. Um, Ukraine asked to meet with NATO members, um, NATO allies today, and there was a meeting of what's called the NATO-Ukraine Commission, where um, uh, ambassadors from all 31 allies met with Ukraine. Amazing. And could you, um, you said the dam incident, could you, mm. could you elaborate on that slightly? So, so yesterday when, um, I, I mean, I guess people are aware of it, that the, um, the, the, Dam collapsed. I mean, um, this is a uh, this is a, a podcast about disinformation, um, and um, we don't know what happened, so I'm not going to try and speculate on who is responsible. Of course, um, but um, but that in itself is you know is really important. So we have seen that um, Russia has tried to try to blame Ukraine for it. it seems that it wouldn't really be in Ukraine's interest to do it. There was um, I can't remember the name of it now, but there was a policy institute that um, issued something back in November, or I think it was October, which said that this was possible that it would happen and that uh, Russia would try to put the blame on Ukraine. But you know, I'm not, this is not about who is responsible. But the fact is that there are, uh, it's really, really, uh, it's going to have a huge impact um, on Ukraine, on its civilians, and, um, and also on global food security as well. Amazing, thank you. And yeah, no, of course, we can't, um, we can't speculate, I'm sure. Um, will come to light as as and when, um, and 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 speaking of obviously um, understanding the conflict a little, little bit better and so forth. Um, Nick, how does the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab conduct its research, and what has been the most significant, such interesting um, finding? Would you say in regards to the uh, Russia conflict, Russia-Ukraine conflict? Yeah, um, in terms of research, try to keep it short. The basis of our work, as I mentioned earlier, is open source. So at its simplest, open source is any information that's publicly accessible. And the purpose of that methodology is that it comes with an inherent transparency and accountability, which is particularly important when you're talking about disinformation, where a lot of the goal is to undermine uh, trust. So instead of saying, we're experts, so you should trust us, we say, here's the information we're looking at, you can look at it yourself, here's the methodologies we used, here's how we came to these conclusions. Uh, we primarily look at digital information environments, so pretty much any online content. Um, that's social media platforms are, are a big focus, uh, third-party blogs, official government accounts, commercial websites, uh, messaging platforms like WhatsApp and Telegram. And across all of these, we're basically analyzing different elements to uh, get a breakdown of how campaigns operate, how different information operations spread, how effective they are ultimately, uh, so that we can better raise awareness and, and uh, effectively uh, uh, counter them moving forward. Um, in terms of the biggest lessons from the war, um, I'd say two main top lines. The first is um, our team did a, 
like I mentioned, was founded in 2016 to analyze the uh, uh, original invasion. And so we'd been monitoring for seven years up until, the, um, up until February of last year. And uh, recently we did a longitudinal analysis of all those narratives over that time. And what we saw was a distinct spike in the effectively two months prior to the invasion, where Russia's narratives shifted from the seven years prior to a very uh, intentional and uh, explicit justification. So all the narratives became uh, about why the Russian invasion was necessary. It was you know, Ukraine being an aggressor, creating human rights abuses. It was uh, that the West is creating the tensions. Russia's interests are to defend uh, civilian populations of, of Russian um, citizens in the Donbass. And uh, it was quantifiably um, uh, different in volume from the months and years preceding. In January of 2022, uh, we saw a 50% increase in Russian language media mentions of Ukrainian aggression compared to the month prior. So you basically have this clear precursor of the information uh, operations leading and, and being delivered in parallel to what then became the security situation and, and uh, movement on the ground. So it, it was pretty striking how directly that, um, that shift happened uh, amongst Kremlin and Kremlin-aligned sources. Um, I have a second point, it'll probably be a bit long, maybe we can get into later, but it's basically the operations in the global south have been fascinating to see how narratives played in domestic Russia, Ukraine, the West versus global south. Amazing. No, thank you very much. And 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 speaking of um of uh, Kremlin sources, precious. Um please tell us a bit about your your book, The uh, Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, and uh, Politics on RT, and how it relates to the uh, pro-Kremlin narratives in, that you, you may have seen in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Uh, thanks, Matteo. So the book is about RT and how it operates, basically. So there have often been a lot of assumptions about how Russian disinformation works that I think make it quite difficult to effectively deal with it. So one really crucial example is what do we mean when we say disinformation? So strictly speaking, disinformation means false information. In fact, that is not the bulk of what Russia does with its information operations. What, you know, if it did, if something was demonstrably false, it wouldn't resonate so widely. So what it tends to do is pick little nuggets that are actually true and then weave them together into a narrative that is expedient for the Russian state. And that's what RT had done relatively uh, consistently and effectively, um, basically ever since around 2008, the, the, the Russian uh, war against Georgia. Prior to that, it had been kind of more touchy-feely. Now, aside from this, when really important strategic international events happen for Russia, such as the war with Georgia, um, the annexation of Crimea, the poisoning of the Skripals in the UK, RT would change what it was doing and it would much more um, explicitly engage in what you think of as kind of core disinformation type practices, you know, actually propagating full-on conspiracy theories, not necessarily creating them, but um, as Paul was saying earlier, you know, thinking about what actually works in different societies, what debates are already going on, what kind of schisms are already meaningful in different societies, and then tailoring its engagement with conspiracy theories to what's already being discussed in the various different um, environments in which it operates. So that's basically how RT has operated over time. It's, you know, it still operates now, even though it's been ousted from um, European and, and, and US media space. Um, but all of its outlets very much tailor what they're doing to those environments. And as Nick already alluded to, you know, there's a really clear intention to create a sort of anti-US, anti-imperial narrative that will resonate in Latin America, for example, or will, or will resonate in Africa. Despite the fact that if you think about it for even a moment, you know, what Russia's doing is <laughs> imperial in nature. Um, and yet, because certain narratives have a a, a general kind of history, a backstory, they make more sense to different audiences. And that's kind of how Artie's um, tried to justify this, all of Russia's foreign policy decisions, but especially when we look at what's going on in Ukraine now, that's how uh, Artie and the broader Russian kind of information operations attempt to, to justify that. Amazing, thank you. And um, 
On, on that point, and um, this is, I guess, to yourself, but also open to, um, to all of you if, if you wish to, uh, to go into it. But what is the difference, would you say, between, um, and you, you said, you know, you've got to identify what you mean by disinformation, but um, the difference between disinformation spread through kind of state-funded uh, operations like Russia Today RT, and then disinformation on, say, closed or open social media channels. Have you seen a difference, or is it kind of the same narratives pushed out? So for me, I'd say, I mean, the platform or the particular geographical context mm. that disinformation or any other type of disordered information is spread on has a direct impact on how it circulates and the kind of narratives that kind of circulate, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you can't split one from the other, you know, like RT never fully primarily existed as a broadcast outlet. It always was part broadcast, part online with online being the most significant part of it. The broadcast was just a sort of status thing, I would say. Um, but it's had a range of operations across different platforms and geographical contexts, which each take on quite specific um, characteristics. So we had, you know, like almost sort of educational endeavors through RT versus it's kind of really agitprop sort of um, discussion shows versus... Um, some really genuinely decent investigative reporting about stuff that doesn't really matter to Russia, you know, and that's how it managed to create this particular persona for so long. That's what gives it some kind of kind of credence with people who want alternative news sources. Mm. Um, and, and that's what made it appear as something other than an inst a direct instrument of the Russian state. So I would say all that kind of disordered information is very much tailored to the different um, platforms it appears on rather than being like separate mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're nodding. Up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this comes up a lot in our research. Uh, exactly as you said, we, we basically identified this um, concept of full spectrum propaganda approach where you have this ecosystem, whether formally or informally, that reinforces itself. And so in some cases, you might see an official spokesperson uh, that initiates the statement that then gets picked up by RT and then gets picked up by bloggers, that then gets picked, et cetera. And sometimes it's the other way around that it's initiated. In a, and it, it doesn't necessarily... Um, it, it, the platform that is spread on and engaged on changes, but the overall operation is in concert with, with itself. Um, and so uh, you can never separate out a given actor or a given platform because it's all intersectional in the end. One of the things that we've seen is, is troll farms, which, are, which operate pretty openly um, and which rather than putting out the content themselves are looking at other content that's already out there on social media platforms and then putting through comments, getting narratives in lots of different ways, which are much harder to um, attribute than if, if it's going through RT or sort of um, standard state media. And, and, and how successful would you say the, this, this has been in, in both um, within Ukraine, you know, targeting individuals in Ukraine, but also in in say NATO member states, like has it has it been successful? Has it has it, is there any uh, an understanding of maybe some of those messages? The, the state-sponsored messages seem to be more attractive to certain demographics or certain individuals than say the the, the social media fractured ones, or is it still a bit of a, a blur? Would you say? Um, yeah, there are a lot of different angles to that. One in terms of geographies. We've certainly seen different messaging to Russia domestically, where it's about sub, uh, reinforcing support for the war and and having you know a unified public response and support of the Kremlin. In Ukraine, it's it's about undermining Ukrainian support for the war, demoralization. Um, among the West, it's targeted towards delegitimization of Ukraine's mission and trying to undermine aid. And then global South, it's it's similar. Um, but trying to discredit with the different narratives, the anti-colonial. And each of those we've seen uh, penetrate and, and be picked up somewhat differently. So in Ukraine, famously, Zelensky has done an incredible job um, with, with domestic messaging and morale has been higher than uh, was ever predicted at the start of the war. Uh, on the flip side, in the global south, we've actually seen a pretty um, significant uh, penetration and pickup of Russian narratives where um, countries like South Africa or um, Spanish-speaking countries in, in Latin America, uh, there's significant engagement with uh, RT, Sputnik, and other 
Kremlin-aligned uh, sources. Um, last year, our team did an analysis. Uh, we have a Latin America-based research team that did analysis of Spanish language um, uh, news sources and basically found that on um, each major social media platform uh, that was operating Spanish language um, content, RT or Sputnik or another Kremlin-aligned source was in at least the top 10, if not uh, top, I believe, five or six um, most engaged with uh, media sources on those platforms. Um, and as evidenced by the UN um, votes condemning the war, the just volume of, of unaligned countries is, is, I think, a lot larger than a lot of people would have initially thought. So all that to say, domestic Ukraine reception versus Global South has certainly been different. And um, what... We think if this kind of regards to disinformation, obviously Paul mentioned quite a bit and yourselves as well about what um, has been done around tracking disinformation, but also kind of countering it. Um, but what threat does disinformation pose to NATO and its allies? Like, do you consider disinformation, for example, um, yourself, Claire, um, to be a security issue? Is it something that we need to tackle? Like, how serious would you say something like this is? So from the UK perspective and the NATO perspective as well, disinformation is um, absolutely, absolutely seen as a security issue. Um, if you look at the UK's um, recent integrated review refresh, which was looking at the security context we find ourselves in, hybrid threats, um, sub-threshold threats, including disinformation was picked out. And it's something that um, we talk about a lot um, at NATO um, as well. And some of it's very direct. Um, before this, we were talking about vaccinations, and you know you can see if people are believing um, that you shouldn't have a COVID nineteen vaccination, that has a very direct effect on on people's health and well being. But also um, disinformation it really gets at the fabric of society, so it stops people trusting in government, it stops people trusting in each other, pitches groups against each other. Um, we saw just an example going back to Salisbury. At that point, um, we saw. For something like 44 different stories were coming out of the Kremlin about what the explanation was for the Skripal's poisoning. And it was you know, pretty clear to, to people, certainly here in the UK, um, what it was. But what that does is it kind of sows this like, oh, who's telling the truth? We're not quite sure. And then it, it, it stops people being able to trust in, um, in their government. So absolutely, it's a security issue that, that we um, have to work on. That Skripal example is a really good one, I think, because... Um, it, it kind of shows up the asymmetry of what you're dealing with, dis with disinformation. None of those 44 or however many narratives had to make sense in and of itself. It didn't have to be convincing in and of itself. All it had to do was be um, was raise enough questions about the so-called official line. And that's, I think, always what it boils down to ultimately with disordered information. It's basically creating enough doubt about a particular um, official line that people can fill their own gaps. That's incidentally one of the ways that RT managed to kind of skirt around Ofcom regulations in the UK for so long, because it wouldn't necessarily clearly allege something. It would just raise a question and let the audience kind of fill the gap. Um, and that way we were talking about, you know, what people's pre-existing um, priorities and issues are, right? They fill it in themselves. So if a question is raised, whatever your own prejudice is, you've then got a sort of uh, angle to think about that in relation to whatever this particular strategic aim is. So it's actually quite clever, but it also makes it much trickier to directly confront because, you know, there's just so many possibilities and many of them are in audiences' own minds. Mm -hmm. And it's, that, and it's that, that idea of, as you say, it's not, you're not outright lying immediately, but you are alleging to something or you're, you're questioning, which, which you know, um, as you say, can, can skirt the rules quite quite effectively. Um, and on that point of what, what, what can be done, um, and I'm going to go to yourself, um, Paul, um, if, I, if I may, um, but how can we combat mis- and disinformation on places like social media, both open and closed, um, and of course in particular to the, to the Russian-Ukraine conflict, um, with the exception, of course, of, of media literacy, of course. Well, I, it's, I don't think you can say with the exception of media literacy, because that is front and centre, which is that prevention is better than cure. Um, in other words, uh, getting people from a very young age to understand the red flags of uh, fake or altered um, information is fundamental to sort of vaccinate them against disinformation. Um, uh, for the rest of their days. And 
And when you look at countries that have been persistently uh, under, in particular, Russia uh, in disinformation attacks, um, some of the uh, responses are incredible. Finland, for example, which, as we know, um, had a war with the Soviet Union um, and its whole Finlandization um, policy um, went up in smoke when um, when Russia invaded Ukraine because they basically said, well, we have a 1,300-kilometre border with a country that's just rolled over another one of its neighbour's borders. Um, and if you look at their approach to disinformation, media literacy classes start at age four in Finland on the national curriculum, age four. Um, that's the kind of approach that we need uh, starting very soon. We've got to remember disinformation um, of, of the, uh, the floating voter, if we can say that, of somebody who who is open to being convinced, isn't the only constituency. There are also those who choose their news. They're ravenous consumers of disinformation. Um, and whatever we do with them uh, is probably not going to work. Look at Tucker Carlson um, kicked off of Fox News and now a, a ravenous appetite to still hear his conspiracy theory. So it's not as though you can have the same approach to all people. Some will want this whatever. Um, there are people who will want, again, to vote for Trump, despite them having suffered under his last presidency, for example. And it's the same with disinformation. So there are some people who will want to read or watch disinformation, regardless of whether it's been good for them or not. Um, but uh, just a final word on NATO countries. Again, we have a very mixed, um, very mixed picture because... As I say, you have nations like Finland, which have a, a great and early approach to media literacy. Uh, but then you have countries with a very uh, fluid situation, such as, for example, uh, Latvia and Estonia. Now, a quarter of their populations, each country, are ethnic Russians. Uh, and this means they watch Russian TV. They speak Russian. And so there you have a whole... Uh, element of society who is being uh, within NATO countries, which is being pumped full of conspiracy theories. And that's a particular challenge where you have uh, large constituencies that are sympathetic. Uh, Montenegro, a third of uh, Montenegro's ethnic Serbs, who are again hostile to uh, a lot of what NATO does. So, yeah, it's not a one size fits all. It really is complicated. And again, that comes back to my original point, which is that local skills uh, and local approaches are the best way to tackle this. Can agree more, and th thank you, Paul. I, uh, I promised myself that I wouldn't go on a, uh, a rant about the importance of media literacy, so um, I'm glad you covered that for me. <laughs> um, and it's true, prevention is, is, is better, but not just better, it's cheaper and easier than, 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 than cure. Um, throwing that question to, to yourselves as well, and including the, the um, issue of exposure to state media in that and how can that be potentially uh, dealt with. But before I do that, um, just a quick point that we're gonna be having uh, audience questions after this one. So if you have any burning questions, there is a mic uh, there in the middle of the room. Um, so please feel free to stand up and create a, uh, I mean, we're in the UK, so of course we'll have an ordinary line, but an ordinary line um, behind the mic and we'll uh, start to take questions. Uh, after the uh, after, after I pass over this question to yourself, so over over to yourselves if you want to add anything on to to so, what Paul mentioned. So one thing that I would uh, mention is um, is the way that the UK approaches dealing with disinformation. There is um, a toolkit that we used it's online, so it's accessible to everyone um, called Resist, and I won't go through all the elements of it. But part of it is looking at the impact of the disinformation. Sometimes it doesn't have much impact. It's thinking about setting clear narratives. Um, so we're being very clear about, for example, NATO's defensive alliance. This war is, you, you know, is Russia's war. It's, it's Putin's war. He could quite easily stop it simply by walking away. Um, so have, setting the clear narrative, as Paul said earlier, not always debunking things, media, media literacy. There's, and it has it's a whole kind of set of set of issues, and we and we try and work with um, our NATO allies on 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 working together. Um, across the Euro-Atlantic security area to, to try and increase, I suppose, societal resilience to, to disinformation. Of course, thank you. Okay. Um, 
I'm going to do that tedious academic thing of saying, <laughs> we should really reframe the way we think about this because counter disinformation is not the way to think about it. That's very reactive. And actually all the evidence shows that what we need is to be proactive. So media literacy, there you go, Matteo, is part of that. But in general, um, we know from various types of evidence that, for example, if you, um, if you fact check or debunk a false narrative, it can sometimes actually spread it further because it exposes more people to the false narrative. We also know that the more times you hear something, as incredible as it might seem, the more likely you are to believe it. So a lot of the time, what instead of thinking about, okay, how do we counter this particular disinformation, we need to be thinking about those more proactive me measures. So things that feed into what Claire and Paul have already talked about, like having a clear narrative rather than a counter narrative, rather than dispelling something, coming out there with a clear statement of values or a clear, um, for example, pre-bunking. We knew that the invasion was going to happen before it happened because of that openness about what the intelligence said, rather than waiting for Russia to spin it and react, it's being proactive about it. And I think if we just functionally rethink how we think about information operations, that's a much more um, strategically viable way of approaching it in general is that very much proactive approach rather than reactive. Yeah, I would echo that. Um, as you mentioned, the 40 plus narratives around Scripple, there's no point chasing and, and trying to fact check everyone. Um, that's why we try to focus more on the spread and, and uh, structure of, of campaigns and understanding the tactics and, and operations. And on that point, I might add one final uh, fully agree media literacy is at the core, but there are also technical um, responses. The way that platforms or information environments are designed can be instrumental in how information is uh, engaged on and spread. I mean, if you are on Facebook versus Instagram, you're engaged differently with its imagery versus text as a basic example. Um, but when it comes to spread of, of uh, narratives, um, the algorithm and what is prioritized in terms of engagements is very uh, important for what is ultimately spread. So the classic example is that um, Facebook uh, had tailored its algorithms to uh, prioritize engagement with the thought that that would then prioritize people talking with friends and family and good content. And it turns out, in fact, what was most engaging was things that made people mad, right? If you are uh, pissed off about a certain narrative, then you are going to hit the angry react and you're going to comment and that is engagement. And that became the thing that was uh, being rewarded by the algorithm and there was a vicious cycle from there. And they eventually, you know, after doing internal analysis, realized that and changed it. But um, that's that's one example of how the platforms are designed, where, where where, where we are consuming information um, depends, uh, depends a lot and impacts these conversations a lot. And it's so true, as you mentioned about that, um, that point about anger. You know, I'm sure we've all been there where you know, you'll find something on Instagram or TikTok or wherever that you like and you'll probably hit the heart button or say, yeah, that was a cool video. And then there's something that makes you angry. You're like, right, that's it. I'm going to type in away. About five minutes later, you're wondering why are you still there? And, and so on. So um, yeah, no, that's um, really powerful. And I promise I didn't get them all to say about media literacy. That was uh... <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, on that point, we're going to move on to uh, open questions. If anyone has any questions, please make your way to the microphone there. Um, and if there are several of you, you can always uh, line up, and uh, we can take the first question. And if you could um, just say your name and then your your question, that would be amazing. Thank you. Uh, it is on. Also, um, if you can try and be as close to the mic as possible just for the uh, podcast audio recording. <laughs> if you have any ideas of you know, wanting to be a singer or whatever, this is your perfect time to practice how close you are. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, hi, name is Richard. Um, what do we do about the challenge of a possibly naive aspiration at media balance? at least in the mainstream media. So if we think about what we might consider to be the more reasonable media outlets, there's frequently, and I'm thinking of the, the um, anti-vax story now, but it would be the same in any situation, there's a panel and there's an extremist there under the heading of needing to have all views represented. But it gives that extremist the appearance of having equal weight with all of the other people that are there. And often they're an extremely minor faction. But we seem to think that that's what balance is about. And on the more extreme outlets, forgive me if anyone's a fan, but say like Fox News, they pretend to be doing the same. 
by having a reasonable voice there, but it's always someone who's completely deficient and can't stand up against the others that are there. So this appeal to balance is not working in our favor in the world of disinformation. What do we do about that? Thank you so much. Anyone wanna, yep, go ahead. Um, it's a really great question actually. And I think it's something that uh, most journalists at um, outlets that care about balance are quite aware of. Um, I was involved in a, um, uh, an event last year, which was precisely about this. How can we recast what balance means? Because if you essentially platform the fringes as if they were more representative, that is disbalance. Um, and in fact, what you're saying, I think, resonates with a lot of people, a lot of BBC journalists, kind of, particularly because of that impartiality commitment, I think, are really um, struggling to work out how you can recast balance in a way that makes it actually functionally balanced as opposed to creating disbalance. So it is an ongoing debate, I think, and um, not to plug it too much, but we were actually doing kind of collaborative new guidelines for newsrooms about how you can achieve that kind of balance. So that's a, a project that's still underway, but you know, it is something that's really important and it is something that people are working on right now. Amazing, thank you. Um, do we have any other question or any other? Yep, go ahead. Uh, hi, it's everybody. Uh, Broderick McDonald's from Oxford ICSR. I have a question about news agencies that are also sort of propaganda mouthpieces. So oftentimes what we see is they're hiding behind the appearance of a news agency, but they're actually just pumping out Russian disinformation. So Redfish or Redstream, Ruptly, uh, Soapbox. What can platforms or regulators do to still protect freedom of the press, but also find a way to shut down some of these platforms. Thanks. Anyone wanna jump on that? Um, I, I can, I'll say something uh, about it. I, I don't know if it will answer your question fully, um, but so uh, in terms of um, the UK government's approach, when, um, when it has seen uh, where, like, for example, RT kind of pumping out disinformation, it has either sh shut them down, working with allies, done the same in other places, um, sanctions, so we've put sanctions against um, some of the people who are doing it. But in terms of working with um, other platforms, a lot of it is, tr is trying to engage with them and make sure that we're having that conversation. I think, I guess, just to, just to add on to that point, I think we've, um, at least in the work that we found, that often people that... Um, want to or, you know engage with these sources um quite often just saying oh well this is propaganda or whatever that if you're down that rabbit hole there is an unlikely chance that you're going to necessarily believe what the other person's saying about that platform if that makes if that makes any sense um so going back to obviously paul's point and yourselves about that idea of media literacy i think one of the best ways of um dealing with those kind of platforms without going down the idea of potentially looking at how do we ban these kind of news agencies about, you know, harping press freedom, which is a whole kind of quite quite sticky debate, I think, um, is building up people's kind of emotional resilience and, and, and critical thinking around, well, where are these platforms getting their money from? Where are the, the sources from? You know, are there any sources and all that kind of stuff? I promised myself I wouldn't go down that road, but. I'd second that, <laughs> but I think also it's important in terms of, you know, the, the outlets you mentioned, like Rookley and Redfish, they, uh, well-known, we know who who they are, who they're owned by, what they do. Um, so you can, you know, if uh, platforms want to, they can tag them in the same way as any other provider, but there's always going to be another one. And that's one thing that the, the Russian state is very good at, is finding these either proxy or semi-proxy outlets. It's not always entirely clear, or mm. maybe they genuinely are owned by um, a different set of holding companies that don't have any formal relationship to the Russian state, but just happen to be run by very... Kremlin-friendly voices who used to appear on RT all the time, you know? And how can you police that? Well, you can't. Unless you're going to fundamentally roll back on your kind of liberal democratic values, there are certain elements of that you can't police, which takes us back to, God, you know, <laughs> building up that proactive resilience. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would add to that, even complicated further, uh, we've seen, and there have been sanctions against RT and Sputnik, and um, for example, we saw South Africa, um, Back to the Global South conversation, there were certain domestic outlets that stopped citing or doing engagement with RT because of the sanctions. But then what we saw in response is that the official Russian social media accounts from, from the embassy took up the, uh, took up the helm of, that, uh, of those narratives. And so you had the uh, circumvention of, of the 
of the sanctions by, by the state itself, um, the diplomatic accounts and, and others um, amplifying the narrative. Um, and so it's, you, you always have to be on that outlook for the, for the next iteration of the, um, of the campaign and it's never gonna, yeah, it's never gonna be a, a one regulatory size fits all. Mm -hmm. No, of course, thank you. And I think, um, unfortunately, we're going to have one final question uh, from the audience. But don't forget, we are going to have a reception after this. So you will be able to, of course, speak to our amazing uh, speakers afterwards as well. But to the, to the final question, please. Hello, my name is Sören. I wanted to ask specifically about the issue of freedom of speech, which uh, people in Russia do not enjoy, but we obviously have here in the UK and the United States of America is especially important. And now, as far as I understand it, freedom of speech means it's not illegal to be wrong. And it's also very important for a democracy that there is diversity of opinion allowed and people are able to disagree with official government policy. My question is, like, when talking about combating disinformation, how do you ensure that the uh, like discussion of different narratives and criticism of official government policy that's so important to democracy remains intact and can still be ensured? Yeah, this question comes up all the time. It's a very important line, as you said. Um, one immediate answer is there's a, uh, just, there's a difference between uh, debating uh, separate sides of an issue just purely on the content side versus inauthenticity in engagement and behavior and spread, right? So a lot of the a lot of the campaigns we've seen are f fundamentally grounded in, in authenticity. It's something like sock puppet accounts creating uh, assets to pretend to be someone that the user is not. You know, bots creating things at scale, um, manipulation of information environments of, of certain information flows through uh, various coordinated tactics. Um, regardless of the speech that those campaigns are, are bolstering, that shouldn't be allowed, right? It's inauthentic. It's it's deceptive. Um, so, and that's a lot of a lot of the work the platforms are doing, and uh, a lot of the tactics we're seeing. Um, on on the other side of it, it's a balance between government actors and and platform actors. This frequently this question comes up all the time with you know Facebook, freedom of speech. Why can't they? Um, why are they allowed to remove content? Ultimately, Facebook's a private company, right? Every private company creates certain terms and services that you agree to. That's why we see a range of social media platforms and we've seen new social media platforms that have um, been uh, created in recent years that have more permissive environments in response to the major platforms maybe having uh, harsher content moderation. And there's always going to be a range of that and a give and take based on the communities on the different platforms and what they feel comfortable with, the user base, and what the companies themselves um, uh, uh, want to promote or, or not promote. Um, so it, it's it's a pretty complicated interplay of all those factors um, that ultimately has to be discussed and, and goes back to the to the public uh, dialogue around it. No, of course, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And um, as with uh, as the, these things go, we're, we're uh, always running out of time. But um, Nick, if we can start off with um, yourself, um, a, uh, and I can't stress this enough, brief concluding remark because we're already out of time. But if we can start with yourself. Any final thoughts? Um, I guess I would just say we only expect this trend to continue, unfortunately, um, especially around the, the counteroffensive. We're already seeing increasing narratives um, as military uh, progress is, is stagnating on the ground. It's more likely that Russia will fall back to uh, information operations, maybe around escalatory with uh, WMD-related fears to try to get a lever, an edge in, in negotiations or whatnot. So. Uh, unfortunately, it's something we expect to be monitoring for, for a while now, but um, luckily we have colleagues and, and folks in this room interested that can help work on it together. Of course. Uh, Claire. Um, yeah, so I'd, I would echo that. It's, um, I think I said earlier, it, it, is a major, um, it is a major security risk. It's, um, it's you know, fantastic that there are people doing so much research into it because we need to understand more about it. Um, we owe it to you know, our societies, to each other, to make sure that, that people are getting the truth, that we have a free and open media and that, and that people are able to, to trust what they're hearing. Um, okay, so I've got two very brief um, yeah. take home points. The first is that when it comes to disordered information, acting proactively is always, always, always more effective than reacting and letting 
uh, some other actor take the lead. The second point is that um, the Kremlin would love for us to forget about Ukraine and all this, to see Ukraine as just the site of a proxy war. That's one of its key narratives. And it makes this all seem more contentious than it has to be. Ultimately, Ukraine is a state. It should have its own sovereignty like any other state. So if we try and recenter Ukrainian voices, when we talk about the impacts of disordered information, that will go a long way to dispelling some of the kind of broader Russian framing on which a lot of their other disinformation operations rest. Thank you so much. And uh, the last word over to yourself, Paul. Thanks. Well, just a, a reminder of why Russia uses disinformation, um, because it has to. Um, it can't beat us. Militarily, we're much, much stronger. It knows that we are. Uh, and so this is one of the many hybrid techniques that it uh, that it uses. And so essentially what their philosophy is, you know, we can't beat the West, but the West can beat themselves if they're divided. And so that's the objective of this. Uh, the freedom of speech issue came up a couple of times. I think that's fundamental. Again, front and center of our societies. They're open societies. And if we start taking that away, then they've won again because they've changed our societies to be less open, less diverse. Um, so I think when it comes to that, that, that contradiction, how do we protect our open societies, there's been a lot of discussion about that. But I think one of the best uh, responses I heard to that was, we have to be tolerant of everything except intolerance. And I think uh, with disinformation, that is often intolerance. And so I think the fight against it uh, and the awareness of it and the preparing for it um, and the combating it remains a very important task. Thank you so, so much for that. Um, and thank you to all of us and uh, thank you to all of you as, uh, as the speakers. Um, thank you again, uh, all of you for, for attending uh, today, despite the uh, allure of the one uh, sunny day we seem to be having at the moment. Um, obviously, thank you to NATO for uh, for allowing this event to to happen and for the support that they've given us to to get this event organized. And of course, thank you to the U.S. Embassy for hosting us uh, today as well. I believe there are uh, I want to say nibbles, nibbles and uh, drinks in the back. So of course, grab some of those and uh, feel free to uh, speak to our amazing speakers. But a massive round of applause to them. Thank you for listening to season three of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of NATO. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.